female folk singer is dead after she was attacked by a pair of coyotes. What is the monkey doing? Tell me what's going on. He hit your face off! We actually have a trainer in the water with one of our whales. If I show weakness, if I retreat, I may be hurt, I may be killed. Baby Azaria Chamberlain was taken by a dingo back in 1980. I just um, <laughs> I just googled what does human flesh taste like, uh, and according to the internet, uh, it's <laughs> it's <laughs> it's so interesting. It says if you've never had human flesh before, <laughs> which like you would hope most people haven't. It says if you've never had human flesh before. Think of the taste and texture of beef, except a little sweeter in taste and a little softer in texture. Contrary to popular belief, people do not taste like pork or chicken. Um, <laughs> yeah, I mean, I'd hope... I'm definitely on some kind of watch list now because I googled that. I wasn't even in incognito mode. What's wrong with me? Oh, no. Some, like, weird cannibal pedophile or something is going to hunt me down and ask me to join his weird gang. And I'm going to say yes. I'm going to take him down on the inside because I, I, there's nothing more... You, you really think there's nothing worse than a pedophile... There is a cannibalistic pedophile, uh, and I think, yeah, we're going to talk about. I guess technically Jeffrey Dahmer was a pedophile because one of his victims was underage, and he was a cannibal. Cannibal pedophile. Wow, I realize that saying the words "cannibal pedophile" at the beginning of an episode is a bold move, um, particularly if you've never listened to the show before. If you've never listened to the show before. Um, uh, no, this is pretty much on topic, actually. This is pretty pretty standard for the vibe that we have. It's pretty awful. I don't like it. Um, welcome back to Man It Is Everybody, the only true crime podcast on the internet where all the killers are real animals. Whether it's biting, scratchings, maulings, or clawings, or human sacrifices that we eat, uh, we're here to talk about it. Uh, yes, welcome back, everybody. Uh, welcome to the second part the final part of our human cannibalism uh, series. I have to make a correction at the beginning. I mean, I don't feel like it's really a, con a correction, but I did have people saying that I was saying last week uh, human cannibalization ra rather than cannibalism. Like, cannibalization is a word. It is it is technically correct, but you are right in thinking that it is clunky. So um, Stephen and Gwen, who both emailed, or uh, sorry, messaged on Instagram, you're right. Uh, I guess technically it does sound a little uh, clunky and redundant when um, cannibalism is is right there for the picking. So I'm going to try and not say human cannibal... Uh, what did I even say? Human cannibal... I, I kind of don't even remember what, what I said that was wrong. Cannibalism. Cannibalization is what I said, yeah. Um, we are talking about human cannibalism today, uh, specifically, uh, you know, a little subsection I'm calling psychopaths and serial killers. It is a little reductive. Um, last week, we learned that there are basically three types of human cannibal. There's people who uh, eat human flesh to survive, um, which I've coined survival cannibalism. And then there's people who eat flesh because it's uh, it's indoctrinated into a society. It's... Um, uh, I can't remember the specific word, um, but it's it's part of the human society. It's an accepted part of, of a society, which we which we called societal cannibalism. But there is a third, and it is um, well, there's a few ways you could describe it. Um, 
But basically, we, we're, we're leaving that last um, category open for serial killers, people with mental disorders, psychopaths, people who, um, you know, are on the very end of the spectrum of, of terrible human behavior uh, and do it for either sexual gratification or in a really perverse and shocking way to, to upset people. And they get their kicks off that. So we're going to talk about a number of um, serial killers today who... Uh, um, you know, most most of them are mostly known as serial killers, but they are also cannibals as well. Uh, a pretty good variety of different motivations here. We're obviously talking about um, people like Jeffrey Dahmer, who was just a straight up creepy serial killer. We've got Albert Fish, another serial killer slash child molester. But then also um, we have we, we you know we have killers who um, well consensual cannibalism is part of part of one of them. Uh, as yeah, so like a, a few different motivations here. So we're going to get into those right now. Toot sweet. Uh, I really quickly, before we get in, just want to say quickly uh, a nice thank you to everyone who's purchased some merchandise on the Man Eaters website, www.maneaterspod.com. Like I've said in the last few weeks, we do have a new website. You can visit it uh, just to, you know, check out what's going on. Uh, Although if you are listening to the latest episode, I guess you found it without the need of a website, but you can go to the website for other things. But Least of not least of which is merchandise. You can buy some caps, you can buy a shirt, a drink bottle, uh, or a fancy mug. Uh, you can get all those things. And um, thank you to the people who have purchased it so far. It is making my life a lot easier. It's making the um. This is like I've always said. This is a side gig for me. It's not my real job. But maybe one day, like it could be my real job. I could be putting out episodes every few days if if I had um you know cash to support me. So one of the ways you can do that is by purchasing your very own man in this merch over on the website site or becoming a patron at patreon.com slash man it is either way you help me out that's all i'm going to talk about it let's get on with it okay buckle up fuckleheads because we're taking a deep dive into human cannibalism colon serial killers and psychopaths The motivations behind such heinous acts are complex and often rooted in a combination of psychological, biological, and environmental factors. In some cases, individuals who engage in acts of cannibalism, alongside murder, may have had underlying psychological disorders such as sadism, necrophilia, or psychosis. For them, the act of consuming their victims may be intertwined with sexual gratification, power dynamics, or a desire for control. Additionally, societal taboos around cannibalism may amplify the thrill for individuals seeking to transgress societal norms. Pathological cannibalism is an extremely rare occurrence and has been described in association with severe psychotic mental illness and extreme forms of significant paraphilia. Sexual cannibalism appears as a rarity in humans, although the majority with this paraphilia do not partake in actual human consumption. It remains a fantasy-based desire. Cases of cannibalism have been reported and tried. Now, sexual cannibalism in humans refers to a rare and extreme form of sexual behavior in which one individual derives sexual arousal or gratification from the act of consuming another person's flesh. This phenomenon is highly aberrant and deviates significantly from normal societal sexual behavior. 
Instances of sexual cannibalism in humans are exceptionally rare and are often associated with individuals who suffer from severe mental illnesses, such as psychosis or paraphilias. Paraphilias are characterized by atypical sexual desires, fantasies, or behaviors that deviate from societal norms and can sometimes involve harmful or non-consensual activities. In cases of sexual cannibalism, the act of consuming another person's flesh is intertwined with sexual arousal or gratification. Now, this may manifest in a variety of ways, such as fantasies, rituals, or actual acts of violence and cannibalism. The individual may experience intense sexual arousal or pleasure from the thought or act of consuming human flesh, often in a ritualistic or fetishistic, feti- fetishistic manner. It is important to note that sexual cannibalism is distinct from other forms of cannibalism, such as survival cannibalism or criminal cannibalization motivated by factors unrelated to sexual gratification. While instances of sexual cannibalism have been documented in rare cases throughout history, they are typically viewed as pathological and aberrant behaviors rather than cultural or societal accepted practices. Research into the underlying causes and motivations of sexual cannibalism in humans is limited due to extreme rarity and ethical challenges involved in studying such behaviors. However, it is generally understood to be a complex phenomenon that may arise from a combination of psychological, neurological, and environmental factors. Overall, sexual cannibalism in humans represents an extreme and aberrant form of sexual behavior that deviates from significant, uh, deviates significantly from normal patterns of sexual arousal and expression. It does remain a subject of fascination and concern within the fields of psychology, criminology, and forensic science, highlighting the complex interplay between sexuality and mental health. Furthermore, cannibalism can serve as a form of trophy-taking, where killers retain physical elements of their victims as souvenirs or mementos, maintaining a connection to them beyond their deaths. In cases of severe psychological dysfunction such as psychopathy and sadism, cannibalism may be a manifestation of the killer's disturbed mental state and lack of empathy or remorse. In rare instances, serial killers may engage in cannibalism for sensationalist purposes, seeking to shock and horrify the public and to increase their notoriety. It's crucial to recognize that not all serial killers engage in cannibalism and further research is needed to understand the underlying psychological and societological factors during this aberrant, driving this aberrant behavior. Now, the actual percentage of serial killers that are cannibals, it's difficult to ascertain precisely due to the secretive nature of such crimes and the fact that not all cases are discovered or reported. And a reason that a lot of, kind of morbid to say, but a, a reason that sometimes these cases aren't discovered, uh, it's because the evidence has been eaten. However, it is generally believed to be a relatively small percentage of serial killers that do engage in cannibalism. Research and case studies suggest that cannibalism is a rare behavior even amongst serial killers. Most serial killers exhibit a range of other violent behaviors without resorting to cannibalism. Now, I'm going to point out something really quickly off the bat. If, um, if cannibalism by a serial killer is due to some kind of mental illness, does it still make it okay for us to judge and uh, mock these people? And my answer is yes. Um, And here's the reason, okay? Not every person who has a cannibalistic fantasy or something like that 
will actually go ahead and do it. There's a difference between fantasy and reality. Um, it's And that's the same with a lot of deviant sexual behaviors and desires. I will say that a lot of cannibal, a lot of people who have these cannibalistic uh, fantasies, they get themselves help. They realize that it is not normal for them to be thinking of this, and they get themselves help before they can put anyone else in danger, because they realize that these urges are only going to get stronger until they are pushed to attempt to, uh, you know, to actually try and eat someone. Um, they realize that one, uh, they are going to get themselves hurt by doing this possibly arrested, possibly sent to prison. And two, they are potentially going to hurt other people, other innocent people, and they're aware of this. So most people with this affliction um, will get themselves help before it becomes an issue for them or for other people. And it's the same with a lot of other things as well. Um, you know, I'm not going to go into detail with it because it's very uh, controversial, but there are a lot of awful sexual behaviors that people have fantasized about, and when they don't act on it and they get themselves help, I don't think those people should be um, should be uh, mocked or judged. I think they need help, and if they can get themselves help, that's good. The people that we're going to talk about today did not get themselves help. They saw the signs, they saw what they were doing, and they embraced it in some cases, and in some cases they just looked the other way and they let themselves do it. So there's nothing wrong with uh, mocking these serial killers and judging them for their behaviors. A lot of them had terrible childhoods, and we don't blame them for that, but you know what? A lot of people have terrible childhoods, and they don't kill or eat anyone, and that's the key difference there. Most people go through trauma in their life. I was bullied when I was a kid. You don't see me shooting up a school. That's all I'm saying. So we are going to talk about some serial killers today, and we are going to judge them, and we're going to mock them relentlessly because they are pieces of shit. And we're going to start with one of the biggest pieces of shit uh, that's ever lived. Uh, he's got a very funny name. I have to admit, he's got a very, very dapper mustache. But he is one of the worst human beings that has ever lived. I'm talking about Albert Fish. So... Hamilton Howard Albert Fish, we're just going to call him Albert from now on, Albert Fish was an American serial killer, rapist, child molester, and cannibal who committed at least three child murders from July 1924 to June 1928. And at this point, I will give out a uh, red flag. We are unfortunately talking about the death of children again in this episode, uh, but for the first time, I think due to a human, uh, an actual an actual animal. More than any of the other animals we've talked about, this is a real one. So if you want to skip forward a few minutes, I won't be I won't be annoyed because we it is gonna get worse before it gets better. Uh, that is your trigger warning, that is your red flag warning. So Albert Fish was also known as the Grey Man, the Werewolf of Wisteria, the Brooklyn Vampire, the Moon Maniac, and the Boogeyman. And I I've gotta say, they've got to stop giving serial killers such great dope nicknames, because that's the werewolf of wisteria that's fucking sick and he doesn't deserve it we should call him the the wet fish man that's what he should be called forever it's not fair that he gets to be dead and people get to call him the gray man he's the wet fish boy and that's what we're going to call him from now on okay so the wet fish man was a suspect in at least 10 murders during his lifetime although he only confessed to three murders that police were able to trace to a known homicide he also confessed to stabbing at least two other people. And I'm, I, I will just say, in normal circumstances, stabbing two people is, like, it's the worst. If I knew a guy in my life who stabbed two people, I would never talk to him again. He would be disowned. I would hope that he would be cut out of everyone's lives. But if you're a person whose list is, he, when you describe him, 
It says American serial killer, rapist, child molester, and cannibal who also stabbed two people. I'm going to say, just leave the two stabbings off. It's already, it's already terrible. So the wet fish man, (laughs) I don't know if I should keep calling him that. It kind of makes it a little funny and it's not funny. Albert Fish is a figure shrouded in the darkest depths of human depravity. And he was born into a troubled existence on May 19th, 1870 in Washington, D.C., His early years were marked by tragedy and torment. Following the death of his father, a fertilizer manufacturer and a former riverboat captain who died of a heart attack when he was at a young age, Fisher's mother, struggling to cope, made the heart-wrenching decision to place him in an orphanage. It was in these walls that the seeds of his future atrocities may have been sown, and reports suggest he endured unspeakable physical and sexual abuse as a child. As the wet fish man matured, <laughs> okay, I'm going to stop saying it, but just know I'm not going to call him any of his cool nicknames. If it, if it says a nickname, I'm replacing it with wet fish man. Okay. As Albert matured, he embarked on a path riddled with criminality. His rap sheet bore witness to a litany of offenses ranging from petty theft to acts of sodomy. Despite his criminal proclivities, Fish managed to navigate the complexities of society, presenting a facade of normalcy outside to the outside world. Yet beneath this veneer of normalcy lurked a sinister predator driven by perverse impulses. Fish's reign of terror revolved around abduction, torture, and ultimately the slaughter of innocent children. It is believed that his motivation stemmed from a twisted compulsion, fueled by what he claimed were auditory hallucinations, instructing him to commit unspeakable acts. Fisher's victims were often the most vulnerable members of society, children from impoverished backgrounds whose disappearance might not arouse immediate suspicion. He specifically targeted African-American children, calculating that their absence would attract less attention from law enforcement. And that's a really sad. Um, that's a really sad thing that's common in a lot of cases like this. I believe Jeffrey Dahmer also targeted minorities. Uh, he did target white people first as well, but he realized that their disappearance was um, being looked into more seriously by the police. So he started targeting minorities, and that's a a big problem in not just America, but in Australia and a lot of places as well. In the U.S., though, I'm I, I know that like there's a term called the less dead, and like you know what's the the most dead person in the world right is a white little girl that's the most if a white little girl goes missing the the country shuts down right the most dead includes uh sex workers um indigenous people unfortunately african-american people and other minorities also uh homosexual people as well uh could be classified as the less dead so uh it's it's a type of white privilege actually and i'm not going to get into the politics of that sorry if it offends you uh that is part of white privilege if you live in a white country um your absence gets noticed far more uh, by law enforcement than the law the you know the death of a minority or quote-unquote the less dead Anyway, Albert Fish's acts of cannibalism stand as some of the most chilling and repugnant details of his crimes, revealing the depths of his depravity and his sadism. His cannibalistic tendencies were intertwined with his broader pattern of extreme violence and cruelty, serving as a macabre expression of his insatiable desire to inflict pain and terror upon his victims. 
Uh, this is where the red flag goes up again because we're going to talk about Grace Bud. So one of the most infamous instances of Fisher's cannibalism occurred in 1928 with the abduction and murder of a 10-year-old girl named Grace Bud. Now, under the guise of a friendly stranger offering an outing, Fish lured Grace away from her family, promising her a visit to a non-existent birthday party. What, ensu- what ensured was a nightmarish sequence of events. Fish brutally took Grace's life, but his atrocities did not end there. In a macabre display of depravity, he proceeded to mutilate her body, methodically dismembering her remains. And over the course of the following days, Fish indulged in acts of cannibalism, consuming parts of Grace's flesh with a chilling sense of satisfaction. The story of Grace Bud gets into it gets into the weeds. It's a lot more detailed. One of the saddest elements is that he didn't lure Grace away when she was just by herself and trick her. Um, he convinced her parents to let her go with him. He kind of became like a family friend, and uh, Grace would sit on his lap around the around the family. And yeah, eventually he just said, "Oh, I'm going to take Grace to a birthday party," and he took her away. And the parents they never saw her again. And they never saw him again either. Um, but unfortunately for them, or I guess fortunately in, in some capacity, uh, Fish did pop back into their lives in November of 1934 when he sent an anonymous letter to Grace's parents, which ultimately led the police to Fish. Bud's mother was illiterate and she could not read the letter herself, so she had her son read it to her. I'm going to read you the unaltered letter now, um, but I want to just stay... I'm not going to do an accent... Usually I do an accent when I play like a character. Uh, This is one of the most disturbing things I have ever heard. Um, I don't, I don't, (laughs) I don't want to read it, but I think it's important to read it. So if you are squeamish, if you were kind of on the fence about sticking around for this part or not, uh, this, this is probably a good place for you to skip forward two minutes, I would say. Uh, Here is the unaltered letter that Albert Fish sent to Grace Bud's family. My dear Mrs. Bud, in 1894, a friend of mine shipped as a deckhand from the steamer Tacoma, Captain John Davis. They sailed from San Francisco to Hong Kong, China. On arriving there, he and two others went ashore and got drunk. When they returned, the boat was gone. At that time, there was a famine in China. Meat of any kind was one to three dollars a pound. So great was the suffering among the very poor that all children under twelve were sold for food in order to keep others from starving. A boy or girl under fourteen was not safe in the street. You could go into any shop and ask for steak, chops, or stew meat. Part of the naked body of a boy or girl would be brought out, and just what you wanted cut from it. A boy or girl's behind which is the sweetest part of the body, and is sold as veal cutlets, brings the highest price. John stayed there so long that he acquired a taste for human flesh. On his return to New York, he stole two boys, one seven, one eleven. He took them home, stripped them naked, and tied them up in a closet, and then burned everything they had on. Several times, every day and night, he spanked them, tortured them, to make their meat good and tender. First, he killed the 11-year-old boy, because he had the fattest ass 
and of course, the most meat on it. Every part of his body was cooked and eaten, except the head, bones, and guts. He was roasted in the oven, parentheses, all of his ass, boiled, broiled, fried, and stewed. The little boy was next, and he went the same way. At that time, I was living at 409E 100th Street. He told me so often how good human flesh was, and I made up my mind to taste it. On June 3rd, 1928, I called on you at 406W 15th Street and brought you pot cheese and strawberries. We had lunch. Grace sat on my lap and kissed me. I made up my mind to eat her. On the pretense of taking her to a party, you said yes, she could go. I took her to an empty house in Westchester I had already picked out. When we got there, I told her to remain outside. She picked wild flowers. I went upstairs and stripped all of my clothes off. I knew if I did not, I would get blood on them. When all was ready, I went to the window and called her. Then I hid in the closet until she was in the room. When she saw me all naked, she began to cry and tried to run down the stairs. I grabbed her and she said she would tell her mama. First, I stripped her naked. How she did kick, bite and scratch. I choked her to death. Then cut her in small pieces so I could take the meat to my rooms, cook, and eat it. How sweet and tender her little ass was roasted in the oven. It took me nine days to eat her entire body. I did not fuck her, though. I could have if I wished. She died a virgin. Ugh. I need a shower after that. That's that's probably the worst thing I've ever read on the show. Yeah. <sighs> if you're still with me, uh, <laughs> yeah. Terror. There's nothing to say. I don't know. Like, <laughs> what can I add? What can I add that's not worse than what he's already said? So um, the police were called and the police investigated the letter. And although the story concerning Captain Davis and the famine in Hong Kong could not be verified... The part of the letter concerning the murder of Grace, however, it was found to be accurate in its description of the kidnapping and subsequent events, although it was impossible to confirm whether or not Fish had actually eaten parts of Grace's body. So I feel a little sick, actually. (laughs) Um, Power through. The details of Fish's cannibalistic acts emerged during his subsequent confession and trial. He described in disturbingly vivid terms, the sensations and tastes associated with consuming human flesh. He reveled in the grotesque nature of his actions. His confessions provided a harrowing glimpse into the minds of a remorseless predator, devoid of empathy or remorse. Now, while Grace Budd's case stands as the most well-known example of Albert Fisher's cannibalism, it's likely that she was not his only victim subjected to such horrors. The true extent of his cannibalistic activities may never be fully known, as Fisher's crimes span several decades and many of his victims remain unidentified. 
For fish, cannibalism was not merely a means to satisfy a hunger, but a perverse form of gratification, emblematic of his profound moral decay and a complete disregard for the sanctity of human life. His acts of cannibalism continued to shock and horrify, serving as a sobering reminder of the darkest corners of the human psyche and the capacity for unfathomable evil. During his trial, Fisher's defense attempted to paint a picture of insanity, arguing that he was not responsible for his actions due to mental illness. However, and thankfully, the court saw through the facade and Fish was found guilty of his crimes. On January 16, 1936, Albert Fish met his ultimate reckoning in the confines of Sing Sing Correctional Facility. Strapped into the electric chair, he met his end, leaving behind a legacy of horror and revulsion. His chilling crimes continued to haunt the annals of criminal history, serving as a stark reminder of the darkest recesses of the human psyche and the capacity for unimaginable cruelty. Now, Albert Fish is certainly a heavy hitter, but outside of the circles of true crime, if you're really into that kind of stuff, there's a fairly good chance you may have never heard of him. He's definitely, he's like a B-lister. He's not an A-lister, but one, the next person we are going to talk about is an A-lister. Now, A-listers are the serial killers that everyone has heard of. Um, these would include, obviously, Jack the Ripper as probably the most famous serial killer, but also like Ted Bundy, John Wayne Gacy, and of course, Jeffrey Dahmer. Now, Jeffrey Dahmer was one of the most notorious serial killers in American history, and that makes it world history, and he was born on May 21st, 1960 in Milwaukee, Wisconsin. He died on November 28, 1994 in Portage, Wisconsin, from fatal injuries sustained in prison. Dahmer's crimes shocked the world with their brutality and their depravity. Jeffrey Dahmer had a troubled childhood, marked by feelings of alienation and social awkwardness. He was described as a loner and exhibited disturbing behaviour from an early age, such as dissecting animals. His parents' divorce when he was a teenager further exacerbated his feelings of isolation. I'm going to just say something really kind of off script for a second, that Jeffrey Dahmer's childhood was, was actually not that bad. It wasn't great, but when you compare it to like Albert Fish, Albert Fish, and this is not to excuse Albert Fish for a second, he is of course the disgusting wet fish man, um, but Albert Fish's childhood was just full of constant physical and sexual abuse in an orphanage. Like, you know, a terrible childhood, wouldn't wish it on anybody, and if it hadn't happened to him, there's a good chance he wouldn't have become the monster he was. Jeffrey Dahmer's childhood just included a little bit of teasing, like, I would venture to say a lot of us who, you know, a lot of you who listen to the show have probably been bullied more than Jeffrey Dahmer was. I think I probably was too. And most people's parents divorce, like over 51% of divorces at marriages end in divorce. That means like 51% of children have a divorced parent. Not all of them have become serial killers. So while Albert Fish had a, had a horrific childhood, um, Jeffrey Dahmer's wasn't that bad. So it's kind of crazy that he turned into the person he did. Dahmer's criminal activities began in the late teens and early 20s. His first known murder occurred in 1978 when he was 18 years old. Over the course of approximately 13 years, Dahmer committed a series of gruesome murders, primarily on young men, many of whom were of Asian or African-American descent. Now, Dahmer would typically lure one of his victims to his apartment with the promises of money, alcohol, or drugs. 
Darbo was, of course, an alcoholic and a drug addict. Once there, he drugged them, typically with sleeping pills he'd put into their alcohol, and then proceeded to strangle or bludgeon them to death. After killing his victims, Dharma engaged in acts of necrophilia, dismemberment, and of course, cannibalism. Jeffrey Dahmer's acts of cannibalism were among the most chilling facets of his crimes, and they reveal the depths of his depravity and the extent to which his psyche was warped by his desires and his compulsions. In the aftermath of his heinous murders, Dahmer's behavior took on a gruesome turn, as he engaged in post-mortem mutilation and necrophilia with the bodies of his victims. It was during this macabre phase that Dharma's penchant for consuming human flesh emerged as one of the most grotesque aspects of his crimes. With a disturbingly methodical approach, Dharma would meticulously dissect the bodies of his victims, selecting various organs and body parts for consumption. Among the grisly menu items were the heart, the liver, and the biceps, which Dharma would sometimes cook before consuming. The act of consuming the flesh of his victims served multiple purposes for Dharma. On one level, it provided him with a perverse form of sustenance, as if by consuming their essence he could somehow absorb their power or vitality. And yet more disturbingly, perhaps, Dharma's acts of cannibalism were deeply intertwined with his twisted sexual fantasies and desires. By consuming the flesh of his victims, he sought to further dehumanize them, reducing them to mere objects of his gratification. This fusion of violence, sexuality, and consumption underscored the extent to which Dharma's mind was consumed by his darkest impulses. Furthermore, Jeffrey Dharma's attempts to preserve certain body parts through refrigeration or acid solutions suggested a desire to immortalize his victims, to create permanent mementos to his crimes. These gruesome trophies served as tangible reminders of his power and control, allowing him to relive the thrill of his crimes long after they had been committed. Now, I'm not a psychologist by any stretch, but I would make a guess that part of uh, Dharma's compulsion, we, we know that Dharma's uh, obsession was, you know, his biggest um, weakness was people leaving him. He didn't like being left. He even had like one person over and he didn't, want to necessarily kill this person uh, he just liked having his company and when the guy was like oh I'm gonna I gotta go to work Jeffrey Dahmer got enraged he got so upset and mad and he was just when people left him he, he just could not stand that so like I said I'm not a psychologist but is it possible that part of Dahmer's consuming of the of the bodies was to keep them with him forever by consuming the meat of one of his victims uh he's you know, the nutrients of that person are now part of his body. He, they become part of him, and thus they can never leave him. Um, you know, I'm not a psychologist. That seems to make a lot of sense. Or maybe I'm fucked up, and I'm a psychopath because it makes sense to me. Ah, uh, I don't know. Anyway, Dharma readily, admit, readily admitted to engaging in necrophilia with several of his victims' bodies, including performing sexual acts with their viscera as he dismembered their bodies in his bathtub. Having noted that much of the blood pooled inside his victim's chest after death, Dharma first removed their internal organs, then suspended the torso so the blood drained into his bathtub, before dicing any organs he did not wish to retain and paring the flesh from the body. The bones he wished to dispose of were pulverized or acidified with soilax and bleach solutions used to aid in the preservation of the skeletons and skulls he did wish to keep. 
Dahmer confessed to having consumed the heart, liver, and biceps and portions of the thigh of three victims he'd killed at the Oxford apartment. These victims' names were Raymond Smith, Ernest Miller, and Oliver Lacey. He does claim to have retained the flesh and organs of other victims intended for consumption. Typically, Dharma would tenderize the body parts he intended to consume prior to preparing meals flavored with various condiments. Referencing his reasons for consuming his victims, Dharma stated he had initially consumed portions of victims due to curiosity. Before adding, I suppose in an odd way it made me feel they were even more a permanent part of me. In essence, Dharma's acts of cannibalism were not simply acts of hunger or survival, but rather the grotesque manifestations of a deeply disturbed psyche. They were the culmination of his insatiable desires for power, control, and dominance over his victims, reflecting the depths of his psychopathy and horrific extent of his crimes. Dharma went on undetected for years, partially due to his ability to manipulate authorities and his neighbours. However, in July of 1991, one of his intended victims managed to escape and alerted police. When authorities arrived at Dharma's apartment, they discovered evidence of his horrific crimes, including photographs of dismembered bodies and human remains. In 1992, Jeffrey Dharma was tried and convicted of 15 counts of murder. He was sentenced to 15 consecutive life terms in prison, totaling 957 years, without the possibility of parole. While in prison, Dharma appeared to express remorse for his action and underwent psychiatric evaluation and counselling. Jeffrey Dahmer's life came to a violent end in 1994 when he was beaten to death by a fellow inmate, Christopher Scarver, in the Columbia Correctional Institute in Portage, Wisconsin. Scarver later revealed that he was repulsed by Dahmer's crimes and saw himself as carrying out a mission from God to eliminate evil. Jeffrey Dahmer's case sparked widespread debate and fascination, leading to numerous books, documentaries, and films exploring the life of his crimes. His case also prompted discussions about mental illness, the criminal justice system, and the treatment of LGBTQ individuals, as Dahmer identified as gay, and some of his victims were gay men. In conclusion, Jeffrey Dahmer's life and crimes represented one of the darkest chapters in American criminal history. His actions continue to serve as a chilling reminder of the depths of human depravity and the importance of understanding and addressing the factors that contribute to such extreme violence. Now, Jeffrey Dahmer, obviously, it's a massive topic. You could talk about him for hours, and I wish we could, but I, you know, I, I, I've only sort of gone into the parts that were relevant to cannibalism, but it, the stories that, that happen with Jeff Dahmer are insane. And, uh, of course, the Netflix, uh, not documentary, the, net, the Netflix series, uh, true crime series, what was it called again? Dharma or something something, a serial killer, a spooky, I don't know what it was called. Um, but it starred Evan Peters as Jeffrey Dahmer, and it was fantastic, and you should go watch it. Um, now, another sort of lesser known murderer is Issei Sagawa. I think I'm saying that right, Issei Sagawa. Issei Sagawa's life is a dark and troubling tale marked by a series of events that shocked the world and raised profound questions about the nature of humanity and justice. Born into a privileged and influential family in Kobe, Japan, on April 26, 1949, Sagawa's early years seemed unremarkable. However, beneath the surface, a disturbing fascination with cannibalism began to take root, revealing a psyche fraught with unsettling desires and fantasies. 
As Sagawa matured, his dark inclinations only intensified. While studying literature at the University of Paris in 1981, he committed, a, uh, he committed a heinous act that would forever alter the course of his life. Under the pretense of reading some poetry, he lured fellow student René Hartevelt to his apartment. There, he perpetrated a savage murder, shooting the woman in the back of the head with a rifle. But this was only the beginning of the horrors. In a grotesque display of depravity, Sagawa engaged in acts of necrophilia and cannibalism, consuming parts of Hardevelt's body over the following days. He mutilated her body and consumed parts of her flesh over the course of several days. His actions were driven by a morbid fascination with the act of cannibalism, a desire that had haunted him since childhood. In his own chilling words, Sagawa described the experience of eating the woman as, quote-unquote, a dream come true. The precise details of Sagawa's cannibalistic acts are horrific, as they are disturbing. The meticulous, he meticulously dissected Hardevelt's body, sampling various parts and savoring the experience. His depravity knew no bounds, as he engaged in acts that defy comprehension and evoke repulsion, even in the most hardest of observers. After his arrest, Sagawa con Sagawa's confession provided a chilling account of his cannibalistic tendencies and the depths of his depravity. Despite his subsequent legal proceedings and incarceration, the memory of his heinous acts continued to haunt the public consciousness, especially in Paris, serving as a grim reminder of the darkest recesses of the human psyche. The sheer brutality and inhumanity of Issei Sag Sagawa's acts of cannibalism defy rational explanation and they stand as a stark testament to the capacity for evil that lurks within the human mind and soul, and it serves as a sobering reminder of the horrors that can unfold when darkness is unleashed. The aftermath of Sagawa's crime was swift and sensational. He was apprehended while attempting to dispose of Hartefeld's remains, and faced the full force of the law. Yet, despite overwhelming evidence and a detailed confession, the legal proceedings surrounding Sagawa's case were anything but straightforward. Attempts to declare him mentally unfit for trial were met with resistance, and Sagawa was ultimately deemed sane and brought to justice. However, due to legal complexities and diplomatic negotiations, he was extradited back to Japan, where he would face a different legal system. The trial that followed was marked by controversy and spectacle. Sagawa's defense team argued vehemently for his legal insanity, pointing to his troubled psyche and history of disturbing fantasies. Despite the prosecution's case, Sagawa was ultimately found guilty, but declared legally insane by the Japanese court, leading to a sentence that would spark outrage and debate across the world. In the aftermath of his trial, Sagawa's case became a media sensation, captivating audiences with its lurid details and morbid fascination. Sagawa himself became a figure of notoriety, granting interviews, writing books, and even making media appearances that sought to profit from his infamy. After spending a relatively brief period in a psychiatric institution, Sagawa was released back into society, where he continued to court controversy and scandal. Despite the passage of time, his crimes and their aftermath remain etched in the annals of criminal history, serving as a stark reminder of the darkest depths of the human depravity and the complexities of the justice system. 
And the final piece of shit loser that we're talking about today is probably one of the most unique cases of serial, or not serial killer, but the most unique cases of human cannibalism from a psychopath. I'm talking of Armin Miewes. I'm pretty sure that's how you pronounce it. It's German. Armin Miewes, or Miewes, probably Miewes. Armin Miewes was a German computer technician, and he gained international notoriety for his involvement in one of the most bizarre and gruesome cases of cannibalism in modern history. Born in 1961, Mives lived a seemingly ordinary life until his dark desires came to light in the early 2000s. Mives' descent into infamy began with his obsession with cannibalism, which he developed during his childhood. As he reached adulthood, his fantasies evolved into an insatiable desire to consume another human being. In 2001, Miwes took a fateful step towards realizing this macabre fantasy when he posted an advertisement on the internet seeking a willing volunteer to be slaughtered and consumed. To Miwes's shock, he received a response from Bern Jürgen Brandt, an engineer from Berlin, who shared his cannibalistic fantasies. What followed was a chilling series of events that unfolded at Miwes's secluded farmhouse in Rottenburg, Germany. In March 2001, Brandis volunteered to travel to Mives' home, where the two men engaged in a consensual act of cannibalism. Mives amputated Brandis' penis, which they both attempted to eat together, before Brandis bled to death in a tub. Mives recorded much of the encounter on video, providing chilling evidence of the gruesome events that transpired. After Brandis's death, Miwes proceeded to dismember his body and stored the remains in his freezer, consuming parts of it over the following months. A new case came to light in December 2002 when Miwes posted a new advertisement seeking another victim. His actions here sparked massive investigation, leading to his arrest on December in December of 2002. The ensuing trial garnered worldwide attention, shredding light on the depths of human depravity and the complexities of consent in cases of extreme sexual fetishism. In 2004, Armin Miwes was convicted of manslaughter and sentenced to eight and a half years in prison. However, a retrial in 2006 saw his sentence upgraded to life imprisonment, with the court ruling that his crime constituted murder motivated by sexual pleasure. The Armin Miwes case remains a chilling reminder of the darkest corners of the human psyche and the profound consequence of unchecked obsession and desire. It stands as a macabre testament to the enduring fascination with crime and the complexities of morality and justice in the face of unimaginable horror. Now, as of 2020, Miwes has been allowed to go outside of prison for supervised excursions in disguise around town in a different state. In prison, Mives works in the laundry and often attends a church service. And last year, in 2023, Mives' former home was burnt to the ground in what was suspected to be an arson attack. Two juvenile suspects are under investigation, but no arrests have been made. Now, uh, Mr. Mives has a little bit of a cultural impact here. He's got at least two films made about him. One's called Grim Love, which was a feature film directed by Martin Weiss and starring Kerry Russell. It was banned in Germany after Miwes complained about his personality rights being violated. 
The ban was subsequently lifted by Germany's highest civil court after an appeal. The film won multiple awards at the 2006 Film de Sin de Sigis, including Best Director, Best Actor for the Two Male Leads, and Best Cinematography. Cannibal, released in 2006, was a direct-to-video horror film based on Miwes and Barandas, though the characters do not share their names. They're only referred to as The Man and The Flesh. The film was directed and produced by Marion Dora and stars Carsten Frank, Victor Brahl, and Manouche. And the film was banned in Germany. Other films based on the case include Rosa de Promen's Dein Hurt in Meinheim Hin, which in English means Your Heart in My Brain, and Uli Lomli's Diary of a Cannibal. Uh, he has had a bit of an impact on the music industry too. The German industrial metal band Rammstein released a song called Mine Tale in 2004, which specifically references the Miwes case. MTV Germany restricted airing the video till after 11pm. The rock musician Marilyn Manson has identified Miwes as an inspiration in the titling of his album Eat Me, Drink Me. And the Swedish death metal band Bloodbath wrote the song Eaten, which voices Brandis' desire to be eaten alive or while witnessing the act. He has been referenced in a multi- multitude of, um, of television series as well. In season two, episode three of the sitcom The It Crowd, or The IT Crowd, sorry, as titled Moss and the German, it parodies the Miwes case. The character Morris Moss, thinking he is answering an advert for a German cookery course, ends up in the house of an aspiring German cannibal. Where the error is revealed, the fault lying with the man's poor grasp of English language when writing the advert. In the American sitcom Brooklyn Nine-Nine, the character Jake Peralta makes friends with a cannibal in prison named Caleb. In season 6, episode 17, Jake arrests a murderer that he found through a cannibal forum that Caleb recommends. And an episode of Hannibal had the victim of Mason Verger referring to the incident after interrupting the title character's attempt to murder Will Graham. Specifically, Hannibal cutting open Will's skull to consume his brain. Quote, You boys remind me of that German cannibal who advertised for a friend and then ate him and his penis before he died. Tragedy being the penis was overcooked. Go to all that trouble to eat a friend and you overcook his penis. They ate it anyway. They had to. They committed but they did not enjoy it. Yeah, well, <laughs> apparently there's some theatre too. Um, I mean, I'm a theatre guy. Let's, I want to read what this is. In 2014, Taste, an award-winning play inspired by the case, premiered in Los Angeles at the Sacred Fools Theatre Company. The play was written by screenwriter Benjamin Brand and directed by Stuart Gordon. The production was nominated for various awards from all the major Los Angeles theatric critic organizations. The production starred Chris McKenna and Donna Toms Capello and was produced by Gordon, Dean Strom, Ben Rock and Adam Goldworm. In 2017, the original musical <laughs> Miway slash Brandis, this is crazy, to make it a musical is just such a <laughs> bold choice, um, was chosen to be part of the Actors Center's inaugural John Thor Initiative. Written by RADA MA graduates Harriet Taylor, Scott Howland, Laura Dawn, and Aurora Richardson, the piece uses correspondence between Miwes and Brandis, as well as verbatim court transcripts to, d- to recreate their meeting and tell a deeper story about love, pain, queer relationships, and mental health. And finally, most recently, in 2022, the Royal Theatre in Copenhagen, Denmark, premiered the play Cannibalen, play by playwright Johannes Lillore. I think that's how you say it, Lillore. 
The production featured the actors Patrick Brontnier and Morton Burian. On, on the opening night, the show had to be paused for about 15 minutes due to the fact that one of the audience members vomited and another experienced an epileptic seizure. That's my kind of theater, baby. I should put that on. I'd win a condo for sure. Me? Me? Sitting there? Eating Ben Lauder? Oh, you're kidding me. You're kidding me. We both win condas. Best cannibal goes to me. Oh, that's a great one. All right, guys, that is going to do it for today. I hope you enjoyed this little deviation from the animal theme. We will be back to it next week, um, but it has been interesting talking about human cannibalism, not cannibalization, cannibalism for the last two weeks. So thank you for joining me on this series. I've learned a lot and I hope you have too. We will be back next week with our regularly scheduled animal themed uh, content. Uh, So I look forward to seeing you then. Um, As always, gang, there's a few things I need you to do for me. Uh, I need you to go to our social media pages uh, at maneaterspod at, oh, sorry, at at maneaterspodcast on Instagram, at jimothychaps on Instagram. We have a Facebook, there's a YouTube. Go to all those, send me messages, like the posts, do all that bullshit. It's great. Um, As mentioned earlier in the episode, there is a website. Head over to maneaterspod.com for your maneaters merch. Uh, If you're interested in sponsoring the show and being part of the family, you can go to patreon.com slash maneaters. I I would love to see a new patron pop up in the next week. Here's the thing. The next person, okay, here's what we'll do. The next person who becomes a Patreon patron, I'm going to, I'm going to shout them out on the pod which you get anyway if you're on the Patreon. I'm going to shout them on a pod. I'm going to write an acrostic poem using your name. Uh, and I'm going to tell you uh, if there's a photo, if there is a photo of you on Patreon, I-, I will tell you what animal I think you would be, what animal your spirit animal is. That's what I'll do. Um, in fact, you know what? Anyone who becomes a Patr- Patreon patron in the next week, that's what I'm going to do for you. Shout out on the show, acrostic poem of your name, and the animal I think your spirit animal is. That sounds good. Alrighty then. Folks, that is going to do our episode for today. Have a fantastic week. We'll be back next week with some more animals eating guys and gals. And uh, yeah, stay safe out there. And don't answer any posts on the internet looking for uh, cannibal uh, dates. Because, hey, they might write a musical about you in Denmark. Okay, folks. See you around. Stay safe out there. Because as we've learned, it's a jungle out there. Yucky, yucky, yum, yums. That one was for you, Haley.